it, it's not as much about your preferences, right? It's more about meeting somebody who has also divested some of their preferences to uh, choose sex and desire itself. Hello, I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. And this week, we are going to do something a little bit different. Rather than visit a lost bar or club, we are going to get down on our knees and reminisce about a lost cruising space. My guest this week is Connor Habib, author, lecturer, and sex workers' rights advocate. In the late 90s and the early noughties, he was studying at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst campus, where he discovered a fun pastime to while away the time between classes. Amherst was like very politically left of where I grew up um, and where I went to school first for two years. So, you know, even though people don't think of Amherst as like, you know, uh, San Francisco or New York or mm. L.A. or whatever, it still the conversations that people were having were on a regular basis were very different. You know, the kinds of restaurants that were there and, you know, the what was in the bookstores and all that kind of stuff was a completely different place. So that was, you know, uh, very exciting for me. And how big a town is it? I mean, it's really small, but the, but, you know, UMass had like 30,000 students and then there's Hampshire college, Smith college, Amherst college and Mount Honeyoke. Um, and, uh, so that, you know, it's just five colleges in this one area. And uh-huh. so it's just tons of kids and professors and, you know, so there's a lot of sort of cultural events and stuff too. And lots of like, yeah, those professors with uh, leather patches on their tweed jackets with scarves, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. And New Hampshire is like, you know, I mean, all those were liberal arts schools, except for UMass, which is a state school. And, you know, UMass had like a basically a Marxist major, you know, so it was like, um, it it was pretty you know, cultural shock for me. And and like, how so? Like, how did that make you feel? Oh, well, I mean, great. You know, it's like, I, I, even though you still had to sort of search and find the people that you were, you had a lot in common with, you still didn't have to search as hard or feel quite as isolated as you would in Pennsylvania, where I grew up or where I went to school for my first two years of college you know so yeah it's like a different baseline isn't there this that yeah exactly yeah um and so lots of students but it was the 90s so no grinder no scruff no anything else how did you (laughs) meet people yeah 1999 was the year i moved there um yeah i mean at first, there was – you mean, how did I meet gay people? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so first there was, like, the 
vegetarian um, food hall. And that brought in all the kinds of, you know, uh, lefty vegetarian, vegan, punk rock kids. And so Mm -hmm. I would go there and, you know, just check out people there. I mean, not that (laughs) <laughs> not that that was where they, but right next to that there was a there was a dorm called Mary Lyon and that had a that had like a gay I think maybe two or three gay floors on it or um you know you wouldn't say LGBT at the time really but you you know you would say gay and lesbian floors and um that was right by the vegetarian food hall as well so you know a lot of people mm. from that would go there and then you know um that was basically it, you know, initially, I, I also, I think maybe, you know, I mean, obviously AOL, like America Online and America, you know, uh, AIM, Instant Messenger were around. And so you could use those to meet people, but so it was hard to find people in the area. And I think right around then gay.com was probably, maybe not that first year, but definitely like the second or third year I lived there, um, mm. gay.com was around so you could use that and uh and net meeting i don't know if you remember that but no, it was basically it was basically like a cam site where you would meet people with your cameras on um very early and it got <laughs> shut down pretty quickly you know and of course the images were I was so gonna choppy. say so just like this you little know? pixelated person taking that oh totally. Yeah, totally <laughs> amazing so yeah that that was how i think and I mean, probably Craigslist was around then too, but I, I don't remember. But those would be the ways. And there was also a bar called um, the Grotto, um, which later closed. And then there was a bar called Divas. But the Grotto, um, you know, you couldn't. I guess I was 21, like right after I moved there. Yeah, because I had waited a year after high school to go to college. Then I was in college for two years and then I moved to Amherst. So I think I could probably go to the grotto shortly after I moved. And so you could meet people there too, but the grotto was in Northampton. So it was a little bit of a pain in the ass to get there. And you wouldn't want to go to the gay bar by yourself when you're 21, you know? So that was, uh, I didn't go there that much, but, uh, that was another way to meet people for sure. Yeah. And so what, um, what was the 21-year-old version of you like? Oh, a total asshole. Um, I was not I was not very, you know, like I was a jerk. I was angry. I mean, lots of, I was like a college kid, you know, like lots of college kids now um, who are on, you know, social media talking about social justice and all that kind of stuff. That was me, but it was... 1999, 2000, 2001, you know, and, um, you're less of a platform. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. I didn't, I didn't have social media obviously, but I was very like, and you know, I had a lot of, um, passion and anger and frustration around what was happening in the world. And, um, you know, that made me really angry, uh, all the time. (laughs) And, uh, I think, you know, like right around my last year of school, my mom died and that made me a lot nicer. 
Um, moving to Amherst may be nicer because Pennsylvania is just an angry state to begin with. Like there's a t-shirt that says, I'm not angry. I'm from Philly, uh, Philadelphia, you know? And so like people, it's very hard for Ah. people to live in Pennsylvania, understand Pennsylvanians. We're like pissed off all the time, very direct. Um, and we have like a kind of, there's a kind of aggressiveness to the state, but, um, Oh, so I, I mean, I wasn't aware of this. So is there like, is there some kind of backstory or is it just the kind of accepted norm? I think it's just a, it's a blend of, you know, Pennsylvania is not the South and it's not New York. So like there's the kind of anger that New York used to hold, doesn't hold it quite as much anymore, but used to hold. And there's also the kind of like passive aggressive stuff from the South and it all kind of blends together in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, that would be my best sort of guess, but there's also a lot of German people in Pennsylvania and <laughs> Germans have that, you know, the reputation of being direct people, you know? And so I think, yeah, but direct is different to pissed off, right? No, no, I know. But I'm saying it's like a combination of the mannerisms and being direct as a communicator yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And so moving to Amherst, everybody was a lot nicer. I mean, there was still a lot of like impassioned, argument and frustration with the world and all that kind of stuff. But it did mellow me out a bit to move there. Mm. You know, I became a nicer person just by virtue of moving. And then when my mom died, that just kind of knocked me on my ass. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, with my life, why am I, why would I be mean to anybody? And so, you know, it's interesting. Like when I see people now getting lambasted on social media or whatever for being jerks, I'm just like, everybody's a jerk when they're that <laughs> age. Like what how how could anybody be held accountable for being, you know, a jerk? I mean, it you know, obviously, you know, when people do truly horrible things, that's one other that's another a thing altogether. But, you know, yeah, you, yeah. Just being like a cocky upstart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean, that's part of what college is for is to help you um, find the contours of your own individuality and your own, you know, the things that you really care about and that mean a lot to you and to hold them with an, a kind of emotional intensity, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But th- that that's what you learn along the way as well is how not to alienate people when trying to bring them on your journey. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and also like when you're, you know, so I grew up in a small town in a conservative state. And so, and, you know, being uh, gay and being, you know, and having a dad from Syria and being uh, smart, you know, like all those things were very alienating where I grew up, very isolating. So I grew up, you know, with a sense of intense isolation, which it really Mm. makes you angry because when people don't get you, you know, like you feel isolated and that makes you an angry person. And so when I moved to Amherst, I felt a little less isolated because it was, you know, there was still stigma around all those things, but not as much. And you could find more spaces where there was not stigma and you could find conversations where, you know, and you could find other Arab people, <laughs> you could find other gay people, not a lot, but you could still, and and you could, there were a lot, uh, I think, you know, in Northampton, which is right across the bridge from Amherst, was and may still be the highest concentration of lesbians in the United States. <laughs> so even though there weren't as many gay men, there was still a welcoming to, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. different people, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. And and then so where were you at in terms of your queerness at twenty one? Yeah, um, I just uh, you know I should say I don't really use the word queer. Uh, I mean I feel like it's become so commodified at this point that it's almost worthless. But I think that um, 
you know, then I probably did identify as queer because, you know, historically, politically, queer was a term that was, you know, uh, at least gone through some iterations where what it was meant to oppose was, you know, a kind of conservative, neoliberal, gay, you know, we're just like everybody else, we just happen to be gay, like kind of thing. So your sexuality was, you know, not straight and, and, you know, gone through the kind of eye of being gay and then super politicized. So I would probably have said queer then. Um, and I think that, um, whereas now I feel like it's been really turned into a kind of consumer, uh, yeah. materialistic, capitalist, commodified term in a way that's really frustrating. Unfortunately, that disregards its history. But I, but I think, you know, I mean, that's not to say it's not worthwhile. I mean, people that need to use that term to understand themselves or, or, or that it helps give them a sense of understanding. That's awesome. And I, and I hope people, you know, um, flourish within that term for themselves. But I also think we need to be wary of how it's being applied now in a lot of ways. But yeah. then, but, but, but so let's yeah. just stay on this because I think it's okay. really interesting. That do do you not feel that the same type of thing has happened with the word gay in like you know twenty years ago? Sure, of course, yeah, I, it has. I mean, none of it. <laughs> it's also not a useful term, <laughs> but. Um, but now it's almost like in a weird way, like saying gay is almost like a reclamation of queerness in its own bizarre way, <laughs> because it at least recenters on sex and desire rather than a kind of, uh, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I realize some people will be listening to this and object to what I'm saying, but I, I just want to say, like, I understand that gay has come to represent a kind of white, cisgender, um, privileged, like, uh, mm. homogenized thing. Hairless. But, you forgot hairless. Hairless. <laughs> but but what I would say is, um, as that happened to gay, that's also occurring and happening with queer right now, that queer is becoming an aesthetic rather than um, something that's tied into history in a, in a deeply radical and political way. So you can have people that are for, you know, um, you know, pe people that are pro-military, pro-police, pro-marriage, pro-whatever claiming to be queer. And those are not queer agenda items as far as I'm concerned. You, you were queer because you would resist the imperialistic, capitalist uh, commodification of gay. Um, but if you don't apply that same thing to queer, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, you know, uh, I... You know, so there are plenty of people that say they're queer that have no class consciousness, that have no critique of colonialism, that have no uh, critique of uh, gay marriage, that have no critique yeah. of, you know, uh, you know, they'll they'll say they're queer, but then they'll be, you know, like anti-sex work or even anti-sex um, expression of sexuality, uh, you know, anti-libidinal economy, and so I think that this kind of that kind of positioning is is troublesome. So you're right that that happened with gay. Um, so when I say it's a kind of reclamation, when you say you're gay, I mean, like, first of all, I don't even really say I'm gay, except a shorthand. I try to say I'm attracted to men, mm -hmm. um, which has its own baggage as well, especially now as we understand the different values and meanings to the word men. Yeah. But um, 
I, at least that's, <laughs> at least that has some truth to it. You know, like at least, at least that's a motion. At least that's like a, something, you know, that's an adjective rather than a fixed or ossified like identity. So that's, I think a little more accurate, you know? Um, and it also doesn't exclude any other options for me. Like if tomorrow I'm attracted to women of any sort, you know, um, I might, I, I would be able to say that without having to get rid of saying I'm attracted to men, you know, um, or without having to label myself something that has all kinds of, uh, political problems historically or whatever. If that yeah. Means. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I guess it also depends on whether you think that once you've labeled yourself one thing, you're not able to take away that label or move or have some fluidity and flexibility. Well, yeah. I mean, the label is to communicate to others. Yeah, so absolutely. it's not, it's not that I, or it's not even just to communicate to others. It's to communicate to yourself, but it's to stand in relation to, um, to certain kinds of conversations, to certain mm -hmm. kinds of people. And the problem with having the label is not that you can't just change it the next day. You could, but then, um, it requires an, like a massive undoing, um, when you're then communicating with more people about the labels that you used before. Yeah. And I think, so what I think is these, these, you know, these terms, they're really useful for understanding. They're really useful for kinds of communication. They're useful as shorthand. They're useful as a kind of exploration and discovery of self. And when, but there is a way in which they contribute to a fixed sense of self that lends itself to consumerism. Like I gather these labels, I turn them into objects in my life that become displayed. I you know, I attain something. Um, Algorithms. It, it, it could be yeah, all yeah. sorts of things, you know? And so that's, I, I, I don't have a perfect way of dealing with that, but I try to contend with it somehow, you know? Yeah. Okay. So that was a, like a little bit of a detour. So we go back to my question, <laughs> which was, uh -huh. um, so you're like, yeah, where were you on like your coming out or your kind of, um, yeah. understanding, uh, your attraction to men? Yeah. Oh, um, I used the right term. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, uh, yeah. Um, well, like I said, I would have said queer that time and understood myself as, you know, um, I mean, certain in my life, like trans men certainly weren't in the picture, you yeah. know, at that, at that point in time in like 1999, 2000, not because there weren't any, but just I, that <laughs> it, it, I hadn't entered my conception of the world exactly, you yeah, know, yeah. or if it had, I wouldn't have understood it properly. But um, so I was attracted to a certain idea of what men were at the time. And I, um, I definitely was very vocal about it. Um, and, <laughs> and also, and also kind of, kind of afraid um, I was still getting rid of some of my sexual shame, but I understood it. It seemed better than a lot of people around me. Um, I understood the potential of cruising and why that was important and why sex was important in the public um, conversation, you know. And so, uh, you know, so I was I was pretty I would say I was pretty out, but I was still struggling with my own. Shit. I mean, I still am, you know, yeah. to some extent, yeah, yeah. but yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about unlearning, there's all of that unlearning of, uh, yeah, what, what you internalize as a child about, um, yeah, non-heterosexuals. So uh, I want to just explore something that you said before. You you said you were very vocal about the type of men that you were attracted to? Not the type of men that I was attracted to, but I was vocal about I was vocal about sex and sexuality. Okay. Like I would, I would talk about it, you know, and okay. but like not with a megaphone going down the main street. <laughs> oh, no, I, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a carnival barker, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, I definitely thought that sex and sexual attraction deserve to be part of conversation and not, quarantined um off in or 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 severed from uh the rest of life and you know at that time it probably gave me a bit more like um of the kind of shocking the bourgeoisie kind of feeling of well i'll be the one that talks about fucking you know um because you know the the (laughs) people people had a certain way of talking about it back then that's that's different than now i would actually say things are much worse um sexually now than they were then but people had a different way of talking about it then that like it became a, a jolt you know to hear someone talk about talking back then um mm-hmm. openly especially if you were you know a a dude attracted to dudes you know ah so you're yeah so you're just talking generally then just generally society we're more uptight <laughs> Not, yeah, not yeah. Specific. I wouldn't say they were more uptight. I would just say it was different. It was in a different way. You know, like I said, I think things are worse now than they were then. But um, yeah. Can you expand on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there's this kind of um, veiled sexual conservatism that's um, permeated the left in a way that you would not have expected. Um, that, that, that it's that it's moved around um and that it's become more difficult in a lot of ways to understand the promise of sexual liberation now uh as someone who's uh you know interested in leftist anti-capitalist uh you know whatever other anti blah 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 arguments um and that a lot of it's been overtaken by a kind of, uh, unfortunately, class reductionist Marxism, or, um, or a kind of uh, fearful um, liberal feminism, which really mirrors second wave feminism in a lot of ways. And so I think there are some issues there, even though we see much more availability of sexual imagery. I think a lot of the attitudes towards sex combined with politics have gotten worse. Okay. Um, and and that differs from at that time. I think people understood, you know, it's like, so I can compare it to Ireland where I live now to some extent. Ireland's actually better, I think, about sexual liberation. This might surprise people, but it's better about sexual liberation than the U.S. Um, And what I mean by that is Ireland, because it's coming out of, or maybe it's not coming out, it's it's, it's engaging with fighting against a theocratic 
shitty religious fundamentalist mm. apparatus, people are very deeply aware of how precarious a sexual situation is at any moment, right? Whereas I think that in the 90s, in the late 90s, and certainly in the mid and early 90s, people understood that religious fundamentalism uh, could find a foothold in any space that it wanted, like a kind of religious fundamentalist thinking could find a foothold in progressive politics, it could find a foothold in censorship, um, just outright religious bigotry, it could find a foothold in the conformism of certain economic systems. And so when people were fighting against those things, they understood that sexual liberation was itself important to leftist struggles. But I think that's been masked and lost um, in certain ways. Whereas here, although the, the struggle for sexual liberation is really just <laughs> in its infancy, you know, people are very attuned to the importance of it and the need for it to fight against certain enemies. And I think that that's lost in a lot of uh, other places, a lot of leftist discourse. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I think I get where you're, where you're getting, where you're coming from. Um, so shall we talk about <laughs> the student union building? So it's kind of, it's... Ugh. I, I, in lots of these um, conversations I'm having, people go like, oh yeah, at that time we didn't have the internet and we didn't have phones and we didn't have this and we didn't have this. And it kind of, like, I, I was there, but it kind of blows my mind. Um, and so now if I was like, oh, I want to find a cruising place, I could go online. Mm -hmm. But then you couldn't. So how did you find out about the student union building? I mean, I didn't really find out about it. I just went to the student union building and then in the bathrooms, there was a hole cut between the stalls. <laughs> and so ah. you, you knew, you knew there was a hole cut in the stall wall. So you knew, or there was writing, you know, so on the wall. So you knew what was going on there. You but, know, it wasn't, it wasn't, if you were, if you were straight, you might not have noticed or you might've noticed and been like, ha ha, that's stupid and weird and not thought of it again. But if you were gay, you know, it tied into... There the, were alarm the bells ringing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so, okay, so let's just, just you know, let's just assume some of our listeners um, <laughs> don't know what that hole is. Um, <laughs> and can you can you explain to me what, yeah, yeah. When, when there's a hole between bathroom stalls, what that means? Yeah, imagine the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's so basically, it's just it's a glory hole. You um, stick your dick through it, <laughs> and sometimes your balls too, and then somebody on the other side sucks your dick, or maybe you end up fucking them, and uh, that's it. You very often don't ever see the other person. You don't know what they look like um, if you are sticking your dick through, and if you are the one sucking or getting fucked, you just know what their dick and balls look like, and that's basically it. Yeah. And so, um, you can put your butt up to it too, just to, just to, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or if you have, if you're in, in the men's bathroom now and you have a cunt, you can put that up to it as well. Yeah. 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 Just imagine any whole, uh, orifice type yeah. thing on your body. Um, I'm, I'm actually just looking up like the, the origin of the word right now, but, um, <laughs> can you, so like, do you actually knew what that was at 21? Oh, yeah, totally. At that point, I mean, 
I had been in cruisy bathrooms before at that point, but I don't think I'd ever been to one that was easy to go back to <laughs> and that, um, like because could, of where you lived and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was on campus every day, you know, at, or, and at, that was accessible. That was populated, you know, a lot. Um, you know, so, um, eh, that's not entirely true. There was one at my old school, there was a cruisy bathroom there, but there was no glory hole. So, um, the glory hole was the new, in a, you know, technological <laughs> innovation in, in, in this student union bathroom. Magical world. Yeah. On yeah. the other side. The religious idea. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm, I am looking up the origin of the word and, and <laughs> I might get distracted whilst I'm asking questions. Um, so then explain to me what you do. What, explain to me oh, what you do. Say, what's my question? My question is like, what, yeah, what is the, um, what's the ceremony <laughs> it's a ritual. Um, you know, like some, it, it changed from time to time, you know, because you wouldn't always know that the other person on the side of the, the other side of the wall wanted to have sex. So you would wait for some kind of signal, you know, um, they would tap their foot or they would just be in there for a long time. And so would you, you know, and you'd kind of get the hint or they would, you know, you'd see them kind of leaning over to look through or in um if they were a little more blatant they would put their finger through the hole but that required you know a kind of courage that the other person wasn't just in there using the bathroom um sometimes if it was a straight person next to you they would just stick toilet paper in the hole to you know block it up um and uh which is their way of saying definitely no yeah oh yeah, yeah. it's just like i mean you know it's like closing the door like you, you don't want people to see you you know while you're in there um, but usually, you know, the thing that would cue you in was that it was, the person was in there for a long time. And so were you, I think that, you know, I, th that's not how it is at every sort of glory hole place, but that was how you would kind of know. And it was, so there were one, two, three, four stalls. So there were the th three, uh, stalls lined up and then there was the stall for people with disabilities at the end, you know, and that was bigger. So there was the, the first stall and the second stall had like a little kind of peephole where you could like look in. And then the third and f the, the, the second and third one had a big glory hole. And then the third and the, uh, the stall in the end that was for people with disabilities would have another kind of like peephole in it. So you, so it was the third and the fourth one, you know, like you would go in those, but always the other ones were filled with people too, that were looking in. Some of the guys would go sort of under the stall, you know, sometimes, um, in the other ones, but that was a little riskier because you didn't want people to sort of walk in and see you there. But if you were just in the one with the glory hole, nobody could see you, you know, it was essentially a private space in a public space to have sex, you know? So imagine, you know, you're in a, you're in a, a building that has a room for, you know, a bedroom, but the rest of the room, the rest of the building is private. It ended up sort of being like that, where you would have this private enclosed space and nobody would even really know what you were doing. They might look, if they went to look under the stall and see that you're, you were standing the wrong way, that your feet were the wrong <laughs> way, they could do that, I suppose. But even then nothing's really being revealed to them. So you have this kind of private sexual experience that's blocked off from 
that you know public eye and uh, some people could look in on you from those peepholes but then they'd have to want to look in on you you know yeah and so they become part of the act exactly Um, uh and so like how long was the longest time that you waited there (laughs) oh gosh i don't know i mean that's a great question i (laughs) like how dedicated was i um well yeah because like you know sometimes when you're like in the zone and you have you're on a mission mm -hmm. you know what you want that's the place to get it how dedicated were you basically is what i'm asking Oh, I mean, (laughs) you know, that's a complicated question because usually I would go there between classes. So I only had a limited amount of time. So how many classes did you skip? (laughs) No, I never (laughs) skipped class to go there because I knew I could go there before and or after, you know, and that I could go again some other day or whatever. And, you know, um, I think that... I think that I would go, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how long. I mean, I could wait a long, I could wait a long time, you know, um, but I always had a class to go to. It was always in the interim, you know, um, so that was, there was always a sort of limited window of time. I don't remember exactly how long. Um, but one of the other things was you could, there was a bathroom upstairs that sometimes you would if you, some people would cruise the urinals where you just kind of like look over and you'd see something was going on. And then you go upstairs because the upstairs bathroom was very small, but it had two doors to entry. So you could hear someone coming in the first <laughs> you had door time. before they went through the second door. And then you'd be like, okay, well we can stop doing this before someone comes in, you know? But, but, uh, okay. All right. Wait. So, <laughs> so I'm upstairs and, um, but like, am I just like out or am I in a cubicle when I'm doing stuff Ups- with someone oh, upstairs? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, a lot happened at the urinals upstairs, you know, but it wasn't, ah, okay. but it wasn't like, but again, it, you know, I mean, I suppose some people got caught doing that, you know, as people do anywhere when they have sex in a public place, but, um, you know, it was very hard to be interrupted. Oh, I get. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, and so when you're cruising at the urinal, is there different types of sexual acts than you would have through the glory hole? Um, I mean, there are different cues, you know, um, like you would again, but a lot of it was just time. Like you would just notice someone was standing there too long. And so were you you know and, and then they were just shaking of, a penis that had no, no piss coming out of it yeah or they yeah. would just look over at you or you know what i mean like and and so you would know i mean the real problem you know like was yeah i don't know i, I was gonna say like there well no i don't really have any problem to say i just i was gonna say um you would know they would tap their feet or they would go after they pissed, they would go to the sink and they would wash their hand like three times, you know, <laughs> to see if you were sticking around, that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, God, in a post-COVID world, you're just not going to know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or we can just assume that everybody is crazy. Um, uh, <laughs> and so, like, are you the, are you more the, like, uh, initiator or are you the follower? Um. Well, when I was in when I was an undergrad, I was much more the follower um, because 
a lot of times it was some older guys in there, you know, guys that lived in town that wanted to hook up with college students, you know, um, yeah. or, well, I, that's, well, that doesn't explain my behavior. I'm just saying like, I would have been for the most part, a little afraid to initiate unless I saw someone in there that I had seen go in before, mm -hmm. you know, or I had gone upstairs with before, and then I'd feel a little more comfortable initiating at that point. Mm. Um, but I was, I, I think out of the hundreds of times I've had sex in the, in that building, I probably, uh, I probably sucked like three dicks. Like it was always me getting, you know, so I was always the oral top really. Um, I think oh. there were probably, there were probably a few times that there were probably a few times that people like that I fucked people without knowing it too. I think <laughs> like they, they <laughs> just sort of turned around and I didn't know. Cause I remember there were times when like I would feel something banging against the wall and I was like, what's going on? You know, um, <laughs> That person's going to get concussed. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or like, um, you know, they would put a condom on me, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that, then I would know, but the, some guys like sucked you with condoms on back then too. So, yeah. um, that still happens sometimes, but very rarely now. God, isn't that weird though, to think that like, you can't tell the difference. Sometimes. Well, I think back then, especially, I didn't really have a lot of experience fucking. Like, I think that that's something that people should talk about a little bit more. It's very interesting is that, like, anal sex, while it was popular for a long time, you know, it not – there's, like, a long period of time where people just – really, it was not a primary sexual activity for a lot of gay men. And um, – Oh yeah. And I don't yeah. I, I don't think that's just because of HIV. I don't know if it was a primary activity for a lot of gay men even before exactly. I think a lot of people, you know, I think anal sex has become much more popular in the past uh like ten or ten or fifteen years really. Yeah. Um, well and there's the yeah, because do and do you think that's like tied up into the stigma of being the receptive partner? Yeah, I, that's a. I think that's a good point. Um, I think that's part of it. You know, uh, the 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 way that people identify, and I think that all the politics around that are really fascinating. Yeah, they're yeah, really incredible. Like, yeah, let's maybe not get onto that, but <laughs> yeah, but I agree. Um, uh, but but so you were saying, so you were only ever the. The dick through the hole. And it's, balls. It had, oh and, no, Wait, did it have room for your balls? No, that one did not. It actually did not have room for your balls. So that was a whole other oh, thing. Oh man. Um, no, it was, it was actually really cool because it created a very different sensation. Like to only have that, it was a very different sensation. Yeah. Wait, why? Well, because your balls were being essentially stimulated the entire time because they're pushing up against the wall while you're getting a blowjob. Okay. So, um, you know, in some ways you were actually being stimulated. In other ways they weren't included in the kinds of stimulation you could have. But, you know, I'm actually, I feel like I'm remembering both. So I think what happened was... <laughs> One really, day you came along and you made the well, hole no, bigger. Well, no, I think someone made the glory hole bigger <laughs> at a certain point. Because I remember in the beginning it wasn't as big, like that you could fit your whole self through it. And then it got bigger, Yeah. <laughs> um 
uh, or maybe you got smaller. Um, the, so, but so why why were you not ever the receptive partner? Sorry, that's like such a private question to ask. No, God, as if this isn't all. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm mostly a top. Uh-huh. You know, in my in my life, I it was re- it's really interesting because I was mostly a top, and then I had this boyfriend who always wanted to be the top, and then I was a bottom, and then I was a bottom for really, I, I wasn't a bottom, but I was like tended towards bottomy more, and then when I was in porn, you know, for like almost ten years, like because my dick was not is not huge, you know, they would always cast me for visual purposes as the bottom. I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, like that really tied into my thoughts about what I was and everything. And now that I'm not really doing porn so much anymore, I, I'm more top leaning, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't, I mean, I can do whatever. But ba- at that time, I was really mostly just interested in topping. But I also, I guess I, th- I thought about sucking guys' dicks a lot, but I think I was probably a bit afraid. I think I had. Yeah the internalized homophobia that turned that that masqueraded as disease fear you know a lot of people have where your internalized homophobia just is like jumps from place to place finding whatever it can whatever excuse it can like to hide it yeah 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 Yeah, exactly uh if we just like dart back to the um this the signaling and the initiating and and all of those things did you ever get it terribly wrong <laughs> uh let me think. Um never get it terribly wrong. No, I don't think so. Um no. <laughs> so you so you were never like locked in a stall with someone banging on the door threatening to beat you up because you got it so horribly wrong? No. Oh never. man. Would have made an interesting anecdote. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that my home <laughs> gave that to make your podcast more interesting. No, I no, I I never no, I never got it wrong. No, isn't that really interesting? Like, uh, sorry, I've said that so many so many times. Isn't that really interesting? Like the um, just the the instinct that you're relying on in those instances, uh, and that negotiation uh, and. A, and like agreement without having any conversation or any kind of, you yeah, know, just really, really primitive signaling. Um, yeah. Advanced, advanced signaling. I think not primitive, you know, it's like, um, it's something that was, you know, gay cultural inheritance for a really long time where you would walk down the street and that's, and you would catch somebody's eye or, you know, whatever. And I think that that ties into gay history a lot, mm-hmm. you know, before the AIDS epidemic, um, in U S cities, at least you would have, um, the, you'd have all kinds of subtle cues and you would also notice very subtle and nuanced art, art criticism, cultural critique coming from, um, LGBT people, right? And you would notice that in their their cultural presence, in their sexuality, in the way they would meet other people to fuck, all this kind of stuff. And then after or during the AIDS crisis, visibility became so important and it became so pronounced. And then coming out of that, 
you have a very out, proud, huge signaling presence um, without, I mean, it has some subtlety, of course, and nuance, but you would have a huge, like, big stage, loud, amplified kind of version of uh, queer aesthetics and politics. So, you know, it's like, it makes sense that you'd have big stage drag queens with, you know, really exact, not, again, not that that didn't exist before. Of course it mm, did. Mm. But that took the sort of center stage and it, it, it's a natural extension of people needing to shout like gay people exist, gay people exist and they're dying. Pay attention to us. They exist and we're dying, you know? And, and, uh, whereas I think some of that subtlety and nuance in all aspects of gay life, you know, were sort of uh, eroded, certainly, and and destroyed in some cases by the AIDS epidemic. Mm. Mm. And what do you, um, so we're seeing kind of like cruising grounds and spaces disappear or just like people stop using them for that purpose. Um, because yeah, a younger generation isn't, isn't necessarily kind of just doesn't, doesn't think it's for them. What do you think we're losing? Yeah, well, so I, not to be disagreeable, but I don't think that's true. Ah, Um, Okay. You know, I, before I moved to Ireland, I took a three month road trip across the U S and I mean, there was cruising everywhere, especially in, you know, rural states and rural areas, I think that people who locate cruising or um, differing sexualities in cosmopolitan city spaces might see an erosion of it. But I think that that's always been a failing of people who live in cities to talk about the rest of the world's sexuality as if it exists in the cosmopolitan manner. And I think that that's true even, again, like before the AIDS epidemic, like back in Stonewall, like all that, I think it's that's always been a miscalculation, um, you know, and an exaggeration. And, mm. and again, not everybody's done that. But I think, I think that you know, it's it's good to remember that these spaces still serve really necessary function um, everywhere in the world that's not a city, and they serve a function in a city too. And that most people um, now conceive of understanding your sexuality as something that you can be open to and do something about if it's not the sort of uh, <laughs> uh, idealized heterosexual, yeah, whatever. Um, but lots of people don't understand their sexuality until they're much older. Lots of people don't want to uh, live out or in their sexuality in the ways that are presented um, as options. You know, um, mm. lots of people don't want to commit to a sexual identity um, that relates to uh, prepackaged ideas of what sexuality is. So I think these spaces, they still exist. They will always exist. And the the only way that they will stop existing, really, and then they will exist again in a new form, is if we destroy heterosexuality once and for all, which I think would be fantastic. But um, what's your plan for that? Can I, can I help <laughs> in any way? Just I, my my it's been my whole life has been <laughs> an act of destroying heterosexuality. Um, you know, uh, just 
yeah, a, a certain version of heterosexuality, obviously. But like, um, so I think, you know, uh, so I think I, I, I notice them everywhere, but I think people don't know how to look for them when they, uh, have a certain experience. And so, uh, you know, and it's also, it's not always, it may not be apparent to, I don't know. I don't want to say it's not apparent to younger people. It certainly is apparent to younger people in some ways, but it, and, and, and there are still, you know, people under 30 at cruising areas that I saw as I was going around the U S but you know, it, it's, they might not associate some of what they're seeing because of an expectation of what queerness looks like still, you know, but the the kind of disnified version of queerness is that what? Well, or you know, like we have to ask ourselves a question, which is: Is someone who is married and uh, closeted having sex at a rest area queer? Um, you know, even if they don't identify that way, mm. if they're eroding sexual uh, sexual rigidity in their lives, whether or not they're conscious of it. Um, is there something queer about that when we see it? Um, is, is there, and and whether or not we think it's ethically correct for somebody to do that and lie to their family and all that kind of shit, like leaving that aside just for a moment, you can come back to it later, everybody. You don't have to leave it aside forever. Come back to it after I say, like, do we, when we look upon that, see a queer act happening, you know, mm-hmm. um, do we see like a queer act in when we, when we think about somebody's sexual imagination, um, you know, the closet is a productive space, you know, it can lead to all sorts of uh, interesting expressions that would not come from just openness. And that's not me arguing in favor of the closet, um, but just to see also what's there to see also what's happening there and understand it as part of the, you know, uh, legacy tradition, community, family history of, you know, LGBTQ. uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess like the thing, so even for these the people that would fit into that category that you're talking about, 50 years ago, 20, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like a cruising space would be the only place that you could access and have those experiences. Right. But now there are, there are apps for that. There are websites um, and there are other ways of connecting that, that, you know, frankly are, maybe less exciting, but kind of remove some of those barriers if you're terrified of getting caught, if you're terrified of seeing someone you know. Well, well, there's no app for cruising, right? Like you don't get to it replicate. No, 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 no. Yeah, like yeah. App, right? And so you, you run into all the other problems, you know, with the, with, with those sorts of apps. I mean, people are, are I mean, if, if people are nothing, if not terrified to meet off of apps, I mean, you know, the person who asks you 800 questions before they're willing to talk about meeting you next week, you know, what are you into? Is this, 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 getting all the particularities in a row before, 
you know, I mean, I would say that that's a large part of the experience of using apps is making sure that all particularities are pandered to in a real, I mean, a real like hyper capitalist way, you know, um, I need it. You know, it's like fucking Burger King. Like I need every single thing I want in this before I even decide if I'm going to have the experience or not. And I think that that is, you know, people are terrified of sex, you know, still. And they they use apps, but they're terrified of of going further than being on the app for sure. Yeah, but I guess I'm talking about that that gateway, I suppose, in terms of like if you're if you are considering um, having sex with someone of the same gender, it's far less intimidating to download an app and have a look around than to go to a cruising space. <sighs> I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. So I don't want to be too argumentative, like, and put, but I, but I think like, what's a cruising space, you know, like if you, if you get an app and you're just looking and you never meet anybody, right. Which is what tons of people fucking do. Or I would say at least the majority of time spent on apps is not spent trying to actually meet somebody, you know, um, most most people who are cruising, you know, they're cruising with some intent when they walk around the the mall, wherever malls still are, like <laughs> around the mall, or they're in their, or, or or they they're in a parking lot and they're checking people out and and assessing the potential of a hookup. The difference between the apps and and cruising spaces is that the narrative is that everybody is on the app because there's a potential to meet. Whereas cruising spaces, you have to figure out if people are there for that reason, you know, which is a different thing. I mean, there are lots of other differences too, but I just think, I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Like, you know, if you go on Grindr and you see someone on Grindr, you can make a reasonable assumption like, yeah. this person isn't on here just because they've parked their car, you know, on their way to somewhere else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But you don't know if that person has any intention of, of having sex. And very often, neither do they, <laughs> you know? So there's a different Are kind of speaking cruise. from experience here? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, 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 it's like I'm making huge assumptions when I'm making this type of statement. Um, I suppose I'm just thinking about from my own experience and um, what would be... The, the least scary option. Uh, do we want it to not be scary? Is that, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, well, we I mean, I, like I totally appreciate, you know, physically threatening, you know, well, uh, some people don't, I would say most people probably don't want it to be physically threatening, but that's different than not scary, you know? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I totally, I'm not discounting the, the thrill um the thrill of it and the excitement and the spontaneity which you don't get in an app but i suppose that that dipping your toe in the water is um yeah i'm just putting out that would be my preference is to create an app on grinder ask for lots of pictures without sharing my own asking what their interests (laughs) are without telling them mine and then blocking them we'll see you know, think about the difference between that and a cruising spot. <laughs> you go and you would probably have sex with people that 
you know, it, it, it's not as much about your preferences, right? It's more about meeting somebody yeah. who has also divested some of their preferences to uh, choose sex and desire itself instead and to abandon identity. I mean, a, a glory hole is, you know, pretty extreme good extreme version of that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so then if you, if you go to a cruisy spot, you know, a parking area and you walk into the woods, you know, like people abandon their identities there. And whilst getting fresh air as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. While doing a tree bath, <laughs> but, but you, but you, <laughs> but you, you know, really, um, there's a kind of radical honesty in that. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's, you can make the same argument about bars as well, that like, um, there's, <laughs> there's a proximity factor where if you like, if you had, if you were being asked for your ideal, and you wanted like to, to itemize the things you were looking for, and the acts you were looking to undertake, then uh, you can just stay at home all night on Grindr, um, or any right. or any of the other apps, let's not um, leave them out. But but when you're in a bar or, or, or a club or, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're out in a cruising space, you're like, well, what's available to me, you'll do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there's some magic in that because, uh, yeah. yeah, you're like, you get something that you're not expecting. I think it's really, really important for people to um, interrogate their own boundaries particularities and preferences um, and the specificity of them, no one else has the right to do that for you. Like no one has the right to push you past your own boundaries, but everybody should take up the challenge and the, also the excitement in some ways of interrogating, why do I like, why do I think I like what I like? What would happen if I did something that was not, that was outside of that just to see you know and if i'm not willing to do that sexually can i masturbate thinking about just kind of weird things that i you know and and give myself a completely safe space to try that out could i try that out with somebody else i mean there are there are lots of reasons why i think this is really good and i think that cruising spaces you know in some ways lended themselves to that and and, um and continue to lend themselves to that but i i don't i and i think that grinder I think the hookup apps are largely the exact opposite of that. They're a they're a, a labyrinth of unending consumerist preference choice, you know, and it and it it, it really drowns and and damages people in a way, you know, because it concretizes, uh, it 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 really helps them avoid any self exploration. Um, and that's not true for everybody. A lot, uh, some people use Grindr and, and Scruff if you want to add one other one in, um, mm-hmm. they, they, or, or BBRT if we really want to go there. But I think we, we BBRT is probably more like a cruising space than, than, than like the apps. But you, you have people, um, some people use them and are like, okay, I'm just going to finally just try a fucking thing, you know? Mm. And I think, I think that's great. So I don't mean to discount the people who have had those experiences, but I think by and large apps and just (laughs) in a lot of ways, social media in general and algorithmic sexual imagery and all that kind of stuff, it can really, um, intensify, uh, you know, the, the particularity, um, and it, 
it, sh- it, it can also, if people are open to it, open themselves up to all sorts of things. Like if you're on an app, it's like if you're on Pornhub um, or some other, you know, tube site and you see like a clip that is turning you on and it suggests one that has nothing to do with what turns you on. A lot of people will click on that other thing. Right. And mm. I think that that's, I think that there's a lot of potential there, you know, for opening up new pathways of desire and understanding the self and all that kind of stuff. I think grinds how long you take to masturbate though, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Well, yeah. Or how long the, the clip you're, you're <laughs> using is right. Yeah. But I think that grinder actually, and these other, these apps, I mean, not to harp on them too much, cause I do think they have their purposes and I think they're good in some ways, but I think that they actually do the opposite where you see two people next to each other and like, you are always aiming for, you're always aiming for the particularity. You're always aiming for the hyper specificity of what you're looking for. And I mean, there's something to be said for that experience too. I just don't like that people get locked into it, you know? Yeah. 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 Cause like ultimately what's your goal? Is it to get laid or not? <laughs> well, right. I mean, I wrote an essay a long time ago called Facing the Torsos, which was about how people use hookup apps essentially as personalized pornography. They don't really, you know, use them to meet people. They're about, you know, um, they're about a frustrated arousal, which has its benefits. But we, we, but not if you can't see it as that, not if you can't identify it for what it is, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, quick side note, I really like the way you keep saying specif- specificity, because I can't say it. Specificity. <laughs> specificity. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. practice that one. Um, uh, so I, I didn't close the loop before. I did start looking up the origin of the word glory hole and then gave up because the conversation went in a different way. Uh-huh. I will look up and let you know later. Okay. Um, so and and in terms of the student union building, is it still um, there? Still there. I mean, they, the last time I was there, um, which I don't, I go to Amherst every few years, but, um, I, I stopped checking, you know, not too long ago because, you know, they had just changed the walls out and there was no hole anymore. There was no indication that anybody was cruising there anymore. Um, there's still other cruising spots in that area, Mm -hmm. but that is not one anymore. And so you don't know if they like intentionally did some kind of. Lock, oh, they lock, lock. totally intentionally did it. Three people and everything, if that's what you mean. <laughs> um, what did you, you just said straight people ruin everything. Yeah. yeah. yeah totally. No, but like, I mean, there's one thing to change the piece of wood between um, stalls, but it, but like, did they do anything above that? I like that you said wood, like as if it were some sort of weird, like colonial <laughs> library. Well, what is it like chipboard or something? Like, like you know, Mister Puffin stuffs. Uh, you well, know, I don't know about you, but here we have, you know, it's, it's all like pine, pine separation, <laughs> oak sometimes. Yeah. No, so what did you mean? Sorry. What did you? Mean? Well, just like. Um, uh, did, was it just like, oh, we'll do a refurb here and we'll like replace this wall and that'll stop dem gays, or w- was there like more of a campaign to like st- oh, stamp no. out the deviants? 
I don't think so. I don't think there was a campaign um, in this case. I mean, certainly there are places that, you know, there are undercover cops there and stuff like that. But I think um, this place, you know, I remember them putting just like a metal panel over where the glory hole was. So obviously, but then, but then someone just cut a hole in the next one over, you know? Um, so there was a kind of never underestimate our ingenuity evolution. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, never, never underestimate the ability of a gay person to put a hole somewhere. Um, but the, but they, you know, and then they, then they boarded that one up, you know, with a bent metal panel. And then, um, and then eventually like the walls themselves were just changed out with metal walls, you know? So, because before there were that sort of like dense plastic, you know, whatever that is called, I don't know what that's called, but between, so, um, you couldn't really cut through the metal walls anymore. Yeah. You could, I suppose, pull off the toilet paper dispenser on both sides and then have a hole. Uh, maybe, oh. I don't know. Should but, we, yeah. should we go and check? <laughs> Did you ever go to the men's bathroom in the Student Union building at UMass's Amherst campus? Or heck, I mean, did you go to any cruising ground that no longer exists? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories and share any anecdotes and maybe not photos through social media. You can find me on most platforms. That's Twitter and Instagram and Facebook under the user handle K Anderson Music. And you can find out more about Connor by following him on Twitter at Connor Habib or on Instagram at Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there, and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single from the set, Well Groom Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now, on all good streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested in having a listen too. I am Kay Anderson, and you've been listening to Lost Spaces.